Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Robin Minter Smyers, partner at Thompson Hine and president of the City Club's Board of Directors. I am so very pleased to introduce today's speaker, the U.S. Senator for Ohio, Sherrod Brown. Given his extensive political career, Given his extensive political career as a U.S. Representative for Ohio's 13th District, Ohio Secretary of State, and a member of Ohio's General Assembly, Senator Brown has made multiple appearances on the City Club stage as a speaker, panelist, and debater. Today, he's here as a writer, the author of the new book, Desk 88, Eight Progressive Senators Who Changed America. Since his election to the U.S. Senate in 2006, Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown has been sitting on the Senate floor at a mahogany desk with unique history. In this, his third book, he tells the story of eight senators who inhabited the desk before him, all of which he believes, despite their flaws and frequent setbacks, made a decisive contribution to the creation of a more just America. The eight men from Hugo Black, to Robert F. Kennedy, to Al Gore Sr., to George McGovern, among others, offer a range of stories. Taken together, Brown argues, these eight portraits tell a story about the triumphs and failures of the progressive idea over the past century, how politicians and the public have successfully fought against entrenched special interests and advanced the cause of economic and racial fairness. Today, we will hear more about the stories of these eight senators and how their past history, struggles, and successes can inform the present and future, especially as it relates to the progressive idea. Senator Brown is joined on stage by another writer, a nationally syndicated columnist and Pulitzer Prize winner who happens to be his wife, Connie Schultz. Her, uh, Her other awards include the Scripps Howard National Journalism Award, the National Headliners Award, the James Batten Medal, and the Robert F. Kennedy Award for Social Justice Reporting. She is currently the professional in residence in the College of Communication and School of Journalism and Mass Communication at Kent State University. <laughs> Esteemed guest, members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, Please join me in welcoming to our stage Senator Sherrod Brown and Connie Schultz. Um, Sherrod and I were talking uh, a couple days ago about how we can't even begin this program without first acknowledging your tremendous loss and loss of your family with your, the passing of Steve Minter, whom we both knew. I've known him for decades, right, and your mom, Dolly. Um, I've often told the story of your mother, and what I loved about it is how funny your dad thought the story was. She told me when he started winning 
all those awards, she found that if she unscrewed the, the award part, the brass parts on those, they made great cheese cutting boards. <laughs> and, um, and Steve reminded me of that when I was about to marry Sherrod. He said, you thought that would never matter, didn't you? <laughs> so we're very sorry. And I know, as you said, he was your best friend. And we really loved him, too. Um, <clears throat> it is not, oh, also, thank you. We want to thank everyone who's serving the food tonight, preparing the food, or today, and serving the food. Thank you. Well, this is a, a, a unique situation. I haven't interviewed, I've grilled you for 16 years of marriage, but I've never been able to ask you questions on stage. And at first I was, um, this is the first of several times we'll be doing this in the country. And I was re reluctant at first because I thought, I don't know how that's going to look. But, but then I started thinking about how nobody knows better than I do, one thing, how hard you've worked on this book. Um, I have watched you work on this for more than a decade. And I'm happy to um, talk about that process with you in addition to the contents of the book. So because it's me, your wife, the writer, asking, I wonder if you could talk a little bit first about just the process of this book and how it came about. Sure. Um, thanks. And uh, one, some of my nicest memories, I'll go from back to form, from backwards forward perhaps, but nicest memories is in the last um, couple of years of writing, we often were at the dining room table each writing. Connie's, Connie's first novel from Random House comes out in June, June 9th, and um, her editor at Random House is her best editor who edited Yale Doctorow and John She's Irving. And, okay, but I, you know, but I just, <laughs> but anyway, so, uh, and I, I can't count the number of people and say, oh, so Connie really ghost wrote your book, right? So, but this, uh, yeah, this, this, but it started 10 years ago when I first found the desk. And uh, back in 2000, a little more than a decade, 2007, uh, freshmen, senators choose, uh, most things are done by seniority in the Senate. The committees you get on mostly, the, the, the desk you take, the office you choose. And so the 10 freshmen were scurrying around um, on the Senate floor deciding of the last 10 desks who would take which. And uh, it occurred to me that I wasn't, there were no bad seats. We weren't sitting behind a pillar at old Cleveland Municipal Stadium in out, out right field. You know, we had a, all had a pretty good view. So, so a senior senator told me that senators carved their names in the bottom of desk drawers. So I started pulling out desk drawers. And the fourth one I pulled out, I saw it said McGovern, South Dakota, uh, Hugo Black, uh, Gore, Tennessee, and then just one word, Kennedy. So I, um, I went over, Ted, was, Ted, Ted sat four or five seats away, and I said, Ted, come here a second, would you? And he comes over, and I said, which brother's desk is this? And he said, well, it's got to be Bobby's. I have Jack's. I thought, well, I mean, you get first choice, obviously. But So I, I was immediately intrigued by that. Um, and so I've, I've always, as so many in our generation, Dick and Celeste and so many others, I've always so admired Bobby Kennedy. And I, so I just started thinking about the history because I love history. And around the same time, Connie, um, I just wanted to read more about the institution I had joined because I think you're better at your job if you know its history a little more. And so Connie went online and started buying all kinds of used, out-of-print books about senators, about the Senate. They were all really inexpensive because nobody really wanted them. Um, and so I, I, over the course of this book, the, the, doing this book, read about 160 books, mostly in total, mostly totally fully read, others, some of them less, uh, maybe not quite the whole book, and interviewed about 100 people. And, but when did um, you get the idea that you wanted to well, write? I, I just thought, I, I don't exactly know. I mean, I just thought, you know, when, when um, I, I, I looked at the senators that held the desks and I saw that they all, I knew enough about 
most of them with the exception of a couple, and we can talk about that later, um, that they were all, they'd all had progressive moments. Some of them didn't start out that way, Hugo Black most notably. Um, but I knew they had contributed to a, a better time in our country. And I had come across an Emerson quote from years ago where Emerson said that, that history is a fight between the innovators and the conservators, the, the progressives and the people that want to stand pat and sort of hold on to the status quo. And so I wanted to write about that. And similar to, um, to the canary pin I wear that some of you have heard me talk about, the canary, the mine works took the canary down in the mines and the canary died, the mine worker had no union or no um, government that could look out for him 120 years ago and he was on his own. And similarly, I, I think that I, I've always strongly believed, as most of you in this room probably do, that, that, a, that the power of government can be used to for, for good purposes to help people live better lives. And so I wanted to illustrate that by writing about these senators. Now, this was a different kind of book because you've written two books before, uh, Congress from the Inside, which was a congressional memoir, and then you wrote The Myths of Free Trade, right? This is a very different book, and I'm wondering how different the process was. I, I have an idea, but I, shouldn't, I don't want to sound disingenuous. This was a different process. How, and in what ways was it different for you? Well, I, I first wrote, I wrote biographies of the eight senators and pretty extensive research, pretty extensive biographies. I finished that in three or four, probably two or three years. And I showed it to Connie and she said, she looked at it and she read it and she just said, this isn't enough. It's not, I thought it was, I thought it was ready to be published and that's how little I knew. And she said, there's, there's, there's not, a, the, 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 the writing's not good enough yet. And she said, she didn't quite say it that, well, maybe you did. I was, I yeah, was gentler kind of than that. You were more gentle than that. But then she said, you, there's not enough of you in this right. book. So over, over time, I constructed it to write each of the eight biographies and then write something that, that after the Hugo Black chapter, it was Thoughts from Desk 88. And after the, 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 the Order F. Green chapter, it was Thoughts from Desk 88. So I, I did essays that connect directly or less directly to each of the eight senators. So I, I know you very well, and I know, and your brother Bob Brown, who's here with Catherine Scallon, Bob felt the same way I did, that the book you wrote initially, any historian could have done. You, were, you are a United States senator, and your voice was missing from that. But it also required of you a deeper dive just into some of the personal reasons uh, as to how you became who you are, it, not just as a senator, but as a public servant. And to, for me, one of your favorite, the favorite essays that you wrote is, it has a lot about your mom. And I'm, I'd like you to talk a little bit about that because I think a lot of people don't really know much about Thanks. Emily Campbell Brown. The first, um, the first essay about Hugo Black, who was a Southerner, who came from a segregation of Southern tradition, as you all know, um, I started that, that reflections with, just like, like Hugo Black, my mother was a child of the segregated South. Um, my mother was particularly, um, found, found segregation uh, repugnant, first confusing and then repugnant as a young, as a young woman. Um, she, this little girl from Mansfield, Georgia, grew up and as a young woman from Mansfield, Georgia, moved moved to, um, went to Washington, met my dad at the Mayflower Hotel during World War II when he returned from the service. He was from Mansfield, Ohio, and they moved to Mansfield, Ohio, where we were raised. But my mom's most, my, my mom's interest, my mom was always a National Democrat in 1948 when she was 28 years old. She didn't vote for Strom Thurmond, the Southern Democrat. She voted for Harry Truman, the National Democrat. Big difference in those days, of course. And she saw much of politics through race. She didn't know much about labor. 
Um, she was married to a doctor. She was a, her dad was a farmer. She was a school teacher in the South as a young, young woman. Um, she, but she knew that Dr. King was martyred fighting for sanitation workers and fighting for that union. So she taught me to see the world um, through those issues in many ways. Tell the story about her registering voters. Yeah, she was, so in 2004, my impatient mother, um, at the age of 80, at the age of 84, thought that the Kerry campaign wasn't doing enough in Mansfield. Um, and so she and a friend got a card table and put it in their trunk and drove to a grocery store in the most democratic, low-income part of town. And she registered over the course of several weeks, registered 900 voters. And then she, um, she kept their names, of course, and their phone numbers, and she called all of them, she and her friends that she organized. Because she, she was an activist, but she was an organizer activist, as many of you are, Cindy and others and Jan. And we, um, she made a difference, as she always did. And it was really important to her to stay alive long enough yeah, she, to um, see Barack Obama sworn yeah, she, she was the first one in the family to, to support Obama in the primary. Um, she, uh, her last good, she was in hospice the last um, six, five weeks of her life, I think, and she was um, in Mansfield, and the last good day of her life was January 20th. Uh, it was a big day for her. So let's pivot. When I read the first draft of, well, this draft of this, I came in at one point and said to you, wow, these are really flawed human beings. And yet they evolved. And you could have taken an easier route. You could have not really laid bare some of their flaws, but you chose not to. And I, I'm wondering why you made that decision, how you thought that through. Uh, because it's been interesting to watch some of the questions you've been getting from people. Um, about the particular men that you picked for here. And, and you've acknowledged they're all white males, right? You hope it's not going to be. I also said in the book that if someone would do this some 100 years from now, if someone would look back on the eight or nine senators that sat there after I did, and um, I'm, not, I'm not changing desks and I don't plan to leave or soon, but nonetheless, <laughs> but I won't. But anyway, 100 years from now, they'll look back and there will be a number of women and people of color, and, and it will be a more progressive Senate almost by definition. So I'll talk about though the so, narrative arc of each sure. man and why you told it the way you did. Yeah, I, I wanted to, um, I, I, there, there were three senators that probably moved the furthest from what they were in their early lives and the early part of their careers to showing courage at the end and standing up for justice. And um, Hugo Black, the most notable because he was a KKK member when he ran for the Senate in, 2020, in 1926. He claims in the Times, evidence in the Times is of the Times was that, I mean, there weren't African-Americans voting in Alabama in any appreciable numbers, of course. And um, it was believed that half, half of the voters in Alabama were KKK members. And uh, he joined the Klan because he didn't want to side with what he called the big mules, the electric company, the coal companies, the steel companies, the power companies, all that. So, um, and he said later, he said, I would have joined any organization that got me votes. He renounced his Klan membership, but he voted he voted against an anti-lynching bill. He helped to filibuster it. Um, he did not, he, it was only in his second term, maybe he felt politically safer, I don't know. Um, but in his second term, he became Roosevelt's favorite Southern Senator because um, we have, because of Hugo Black and Senator Wagner in New York, we have, we have unions, we have collective bargaining, we have a minimum wage, we have the 40-hour work week. He did all of those things. And to complete the circle, when he was put on the Supreme Court in the 30s, 
Uh, 20 years later, he was um, he who started off as a Klansman. Um, 20 years later, uh, well, 30 years after he, he selected the Senate, 20 years into his court time, he um, was burned in effigy um, at his law school in Tuscaloosa because he was a key player in Brown v. Board of Education. So why does it matter to provide that additional information about him, do you think, of his story? Um, because, one, you, you, you want to be on. I mean, I, I wasn't going to paper over any of them, and we're all flawed. They're all flawed. Some moved further than others. But I, I think it's, and I, Connie said this many times to me, when, when we push people to change, um, you've got you've to embrace their change, not say, yeah, but you used to be this. It's a little harder to do, particularly as a white guy. It's a little harder to do to look back and, I, mean, I, don't, I don't, it's not up to me anyway, but to forgive Hugo Black or to say that was okay, or to, but to acknowledge the damage he did as a Klansman, but embrace the change he made. And the two others that, that, that I would say came far on their journey, uh, one might surprise you, one might not, was Al Gore Sr., who, um, who was intermittently good, and I mean, by my 21st century judgment, in politics, um, he was he refused to sign the Southern Manifesto, which was the Southern all Democrats, I, unfortunately, um, Southern senators the, and, and House members that signed this um, manifesto fighting Brown v. Board. He was one of only three Southern Democrats that refused to sign it. Lyndon Johnson, because Richard Russell gave him a pass because he wanted him to be president, uh, and Kefauver of Tennessee, the other senator. But Gore. Then Gore voted, but that was the good Gore. In 64, Gore voted against the Civil Rights Act. His son, Albert Jr., who was then uh, maybe 17, I think, 18, his son begged him to vote for it. He didn't. His daughter begged him to vote for it. He didn't. Six years later, he was defeated in large part because Nixon went after him because he stood up against two racist Supreme Court judges, Carswell and Hainsworth. The third one, I would say, is Bobby Kennedy, who started off, as many of you know, working for Joe McCarthy. His dad probably got him that job. Um, he wiretapped Dr. King when he was attorney general. And then I think two things happened. One, the Kennedy assassination, the assassination of his brother, surely dramatically changed his whole view of the world. But the other thing is, there's a, there's a Lincoln line that Lincoln used his, his staff begged him to stay in the White House and win the war and free the slaves and preserve the Union. Lincoln said, no, I got to go out and get my public opinion bath. I got to go out and get my public opinion baths. And so um, Kennedy did that. And Kennedy did it in an in a extraordinary way more than almost any elected official I've ever seen. Uh, and I tell a story, I won't go into great detail here, where, where Marion Wright, then Marion Wright, later Marion Wright Edelman, um, was running Head Start in Mississippi because the segregationist governor wouldn't and so they, they, they privately did it somehow. And she, Bobby Kennedy came to the, to the Delta to, be, to, to see poverty in Mississippi in 1966. And um, she didn't like the Kennedys because Jack's nominees were mostly segregationists because Eastland had to approve them. Eisenhower nominees were much better in civil rights, as many of you know. And so she had no use for the Kennedys. She didn't want to be there. He brought his aide named Peter Edelman and she didn't want to see him. She later did. She married him. But Bobby, she said she saw in Bobby Kennedy walking into the shack, this shack poverty she had, he had never seen before. And even in the developing world, picking up a child, sending the cameras out of the little, shush, little hut and picking up a, a child that she said was so dirty and sick with boils on his skin or her skin. 
and she said, I would not have picked up that child. And the empathy Bobby Kennedy showed, I've almost never seen in another human being, let alone a senator. And that was, that was Kennedy's growth. You mentioned Gore, and I had made a note. By the way, he had no idea what I was going to ask. I wouldn't give him any of the questions. He didn't ask, but I didn't give them to him. I have a line here from there. Uh, progressive members sometimes get too ambitious. And you, mm -hmm. it was in the chapter on Gore. And when I think of impatience, I mean, when I think of what it means to be a progressive, impatience is part of who we are, I think, because we never think enough's being done quickly enough, right? Can you talk about that, though, a little bit? Just address what that, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm looking for, I wanted to read um, one, I uh, wanted to read one paragraph about, Hugo, I know you asked about Gore, but Hugo yes, Black. Yes, I did. In, uh, <laughs> but I'm answering because, uh, okay, I'll pay later. Just answer right? the question, Senator. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm answering, I'm answering it. Okay, with the, all right, go ahead. I want to read one paragraph about I just had to be able to say that because I said I, was, I tweeted that I was going to say that to you. Um, you gave me the perfect opportunity. And it's about, it's about ambition. And, and Al, Gore, Al Gore wanted to be president, there was no question. And um, that, that and Hugo Black's ambition was untrammeled at the beginning. But here's what, Black's early life is a cautionary tale for ambitious young public officials. A populist and a progressive from his earliest days he had the courage to fight for the least privileged as a lawyer and as a judge. But as a young man, he let his ambition flip his progressive populism onto its race ugly, racist underbelly. Ambition kept him from understanding that real populism is never racist, never anti-Semitic, never pushes some people down to lift others up. And I think that ran through a number of them. I, I, Gore, for sure, wanted to be president. Um, I think Gore was trying to balance being the child of the South, and this is my opinion, I, running, maybe running for president as the candidate of the South, but the new South, and that, that Northerners would, would appreciate that too. But So I think this is a, a perfect segue here. You gave one reason why you started working on the book, but then books can become something else as we start working on them, right? And one of the things that you're being asked a lot, I, I've noticed particularly by readers at Book Talks is, so what's the, is there a message of hope here? What's the, what, sh, what message of hope should progressives take away from this book? And not just progressives, can we, can we cast a wider net, do you think? Americans who are, who are trying to remain hopeful in the, in the current um, political climate, in this crisis in our country, where's the hope in this? Well, the hope is, I mean, this is, I, I see a lot of discouraged people, including some of you, maybe many of you, and you have friends who are discouraged about the state of the nation now, I mean, no question. I start with, um, I think Donald Trump is, is surely the worst president of my lifetime. Um, he probably, well, he, um, he probably is the worst president in our history, but I didn't know enough about James Buchanan to make that judgment. Um, but this is not, by far, this is not the, most dis the, the worst time for our country. It's not the McCarthy era. Um, I spoke to a group of ministers, um, clergy, in, including, uh, including Rabbi Caruso, who organized it at the temple, in his temple on the east side recently. And we talked about this. There were 100 clergy across many faiths. And I said, McCarthy, if, McCarthy, if this were McCarthy's America, you probably, most of you probably wouldn't come to this. So, it's, it's, so it's, it's not McCarthy. It's not World War II. It's not the Depression. It's not, for God's sake, slavery. It's not the Civil War. So this is not nearly our worst time. And the, the, this book taught me more than anything, I think, that, that uh, progressive eras are intermittent. They're short. They're really big. And then um, people push back afterwards. Um, and so, but, but great things happened during the Roosevelt years, collective bargaining, Social Security so much, during the Johnson years, civil rights, immigration, 
uh, Equal Opportunity Act, uh, Higher Ed Act, Wilderness Act, um, so much, Medicare, Medicaid. So um, I, I think there is a reasonably good and growing chance that, that that could happen in 2020 and launch a new progressive era where we will, we will all as a country benefit. But I just see that there is, there's, to me, there's, there's optimism in stories like that when you read the history and, and see where we're going. I want to ask you one more question before we open up to the floor. Um, and I really don't know the answer to this at all because I haven't talked to you about it, but what was the most surprising thing that you learned from working on this book? Um, oh, eight years ago when I showed it to you, you said it wasn't even close to being All right, finished. you got to let that go. <laughs> you just got to let I that thought, go. I thought you were on my side on this. I, it, I was so on your no, side that I, I was if, not going to let that happen. If I had submitted the book then, it would not have been. It would, no, I'm we great, wouldn't be up here, I'm let me tell you, that. honey. I'm grateful for that. Well, and also, um, I, I knew, all right, I just want to make this clear. I'm trying to buy time. I don't know the answer I to this also, question. Okay. Well, that's honest, yeah. but you still have to answer the question. Okay. What is the most surprising thing you've learned from working out on this book? Um, maybe that, that there are no giants in this business or heroes in this business. I remember I was with my brother Bob, who's Johnny says here, is, was um, involved in something called the Concerned Officers Movement um, as, a, as a naval officer um, opposing the Vietnam War. And I remember I came to Bob, see Bob. I was in college. And I remember being in a room, um, some reception. I don't know how we got in. It was a bunch of senators. And I just, I mean, I saw, I remember seeing Ted Kennedy there. And I remember seeing several others. I think I knew Gaylord Nelson by, by sight. And I, I thought there were giants in the Senate in those days. And I think just being in the Senate, you, you know, there aren't. There's a story of Truman. The first day he walked into the Senate and sees this beautiful building, this beautiful chamber. And he said, my God, I, I can't believe I'm here. And six months later, he walked in and looked around. I said, my God, I can't believe they're all here. So um, I, I, I mean, I, and I, I think that everybody, everybody is uneven. Every, my, my closest friends in the Senate, um, whom I greatly admire and respect, as good as most of them are, I, I see flaws. And I see them in myself, sure. not as clearly as I see them in others, of course. Well, that's all what, that. But I can anyway. be very helpful in that regard. Um, <laughs> and I just want to say this, all joking aside, the reason I didn't like the first draft is I knew you had a much better book in you, and I was right. <laughs> can, I, I wanna, can I say one more thing, please? No. Madam Mom, just one more thing. How quick? Really quick. Um, the pictures in this book, there are, there's one page of pictures of each senator, and I oh, wanted sure. to point yeah. out that uh, next to the last page of pictures is Robert F. Kennedy speaking at the Cleveland City Club, and you can see the sign City Club here. And, um, I, ch I chose that because I love the City Club and, it's, and I want everybody in the world to know more about this incredible institution, 100 plus years in Cleveland. But also it was the day Kennedy had, Kennedy had, King had Dr. King had died the day before, he had been killed the day before. You all know with John Lewis when Bobby, when Senator Kennedy made the speech, told this African American audience in the days way before the social media and, and cell phones even, that, um, that he told a black audience that King had, Dr. King had been killed um, and talked about I was killed by, a, my, my brother was killed by a white man with hate too, something like that. Then Kennedy canceled everything else, came to Cleveland, made this speech. And this speech is historical in many senses as, as Dan knows and Stephanie knows, it's that as you know, everybody that speaks the city club, it's the rule, has to take questions, no exceptions. And Kennedy, as after talking about Dr. King and about gun violence, started to cry. 
and he and Ethel walked off the stage, and Alan Davies in those days didn't quite think you should go up to him and said, get back on the stage and answer questions. So that's the only time that that was done. All right, that was well worth the wait. I'm glad we did it. All right, a quick announcement here. Today at the City Club, we're at the Global Center for Health Innovation, listening to a forum with Senator Sherrod Brown. I'm Connie Schultz. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, or those of you joining, joining us via our radio broadcast or live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club, and our staff will try to work it into the program. We want to remind you that your questions should be brief and to the point so we can get to as many questions as possible. Now, let's start with our questions. Oh, good afternoon. My name is Merle Johnson. I'm on the Ohio Board of Education. And um, having taught in Cleveland for 40 years, I'm always looking for mentions of education in any book I read. I looked in your index, and I didn't see education listed as part of the index. So I was hoping that you would be able to tell us uh, from the senators who you wrote about, were there any who were really advocates for public education? who really stepped out there and, and fought for our public schools. Um, thank you, Merle. Thanks for your service at the Federation and in the classroom. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I'm, the index and indices are funny things. I mean, it doesn't mean they didn't talk about education. It's just not listed that way. Um, I would say Gore probably the most um, cared about, about secondary, secondary education and higher ed. Uh, during the 60s, as you know, so much government stepped up in such a big way on education. Uh, federal government did it. It, it, it. it had pretty much been the province of state governments, um, continued to be and still is, but the feds really in the 60s stepped up with the Elementary and Secondary Act and the Higher Ed Act. Out of that came Pell Grants. Out of that came, um, I, think title, I think, Title I through Title X. All of those came out of that. So. Um, I don't think you can be a progressive, uh, really, and, and not fight for public education, period. Thank Thanks for that. Yeah. Go ahead. Yes, sir. In your research about Bobby Kennedy, I was wondering, he had a very tempestuous personality. Do you think he would have been good for the number one job as president? Um, well, compared to, the, compared to the guy who won that yeah. year, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know. I don't, is he temperamentally suited? I, again, our standards are changing. Temperamentally suited. Um, yeah, I think he would have, because I, I mean, he had, he really did have an ability to look out. I mean, he, uh, you know his background, born great privilege, but saw immense tragedy. I mean, the, you know, his, his brother killed in the war, his other brother, his another brother killed in, as president, and a sister killed in a plane crash, another, I mean, the, the surgery on another sister, a, a father and mother that were not always easy. Um, and so he, um, he, he really, he, he had a, Marion Wright Edelman told us he had an uncommon empathy, and I think if you are if you are empathetic, it makes you. That's a big part of being a good public official. Implying an empathy is listening, caring, um, and wanting to live up to those standards. So I, I assume he probably would have been a pretty good president. Next question. Hi. Without naming any names, no names. And this is going on the concept of hope for our future. Do you see in the Senate now um, colleagues of yours that might take some of the paths you have shown in your book when it comes to the proceedings that will be happening this winter? Are there quiet heroes there that we don't um, know about? Good question. Um, <clears throat> no names. 
Okay. <laughs> I'd like some names. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I, I hear, I, I think your question suggests a Republican, any Republican's going to vote for, for, for removal if, if it comes to that. Um, the answer is today there might be one, and I don't have to mention his name. It's fairly obvious who the one might be. Um, and, but I, as of now, there are probably zero others, and there might not even be he who would do it. But I, I think things have changed, begun to change so fast. The public sentiment's changed. There are a number of senators in states where, um, where they're, they're in very difficult elections this year. And Maine, Arizona, Colorado, North Carolina, maybe Iowa, maybe Kentucky, probably Georgia. Um, so um, they, they need to think this through. Uh, I mean, I, ideally, the, the way the Senate's supposed to work, it's, you know, if, you, if, if indictment, and if, if impeachment is comparable to indictment in a, in a court of law, uh, that the Senate, the Senate vote is, is a judge and jury, and we're not supposed to listen, we're not supposed to listen to public opinion any more than a judge and a jury is supposed to. That's ideal, um, but I hear so far at least, I was on Chris Matthews the other day, and he played three right in a row of Senate Republicans that said this is, we shouldn't be doing this, we should just dismiss it, we should get it over with in a couple days if it gets to the Senate. So that's not the open-mindedness we seek. But I, I, I don't think it's out of the question that, that it leads to removal if things continue to get worse and the pressure builds on Republicans um, to act. Uh, it's, a, it's still a small chance, but it's not out of the question. Next question. Okay, Leslie Unger. Have you had second thoughts about your decision to not run for president? And I'd like to, you to couple that with your thoughts on someone, whether it's Bloomberg or whomever, coming in this late in the process and what you think about them missing early scrutiny and, and coming in at this point, which you know isn't late, but is late in comparison. So your thoughts on you and your thoughts on someone, Bloomberg, or anyone else coming into the race. It's interesting. Thank you for that, Leslie. It's interesting what you say. It, it isn't late, but it, because you know, then both Bobby and Jack Kennedy, I believe, announced for president in January um, and, uh, of, of, the, of the election year of 1960 and 68, respectively. Um, I don't have second thoughts. I made that. I, I just never had the burning desire to be president. You can't. I mean, I think one of the reasons I, I win um, in this state, and I, I learned this in part from the former governor sitting in the audience here when I was on the ticket with him in 1982, is that you need to bring joy, some joy to the job of being a candidate and being an elected official. And I'm not sure I could have done that in the presidential race. I didn't want it enough. There's an old saying from a senator of decades ago. He, he said in the U.S. Senate, the only cure for the presidential virus is embalming fluid. And I just didn't, I didn't want to get there. So um, I, I, I don't know. Bloomberg, I, I, maybe only a billionaire can get in late. I don't know. I, I don't think he, I, I, I'm, I'm a little tired of so many Democrats saying, oh, the field and nobody can win and all that. I, we're going to beat Trump. And I, I think that, um, I think any number, one, any number of these candidates can. I, I, I wish they'd run their campaigns a little differently. I talk to a number of them regularly. Um, I want them, for instance, I'll give a real quick example in healthcare. Um, every single Democrat on that stage, every single one wants to get to universal coverage. They have different paths, they have different speeds at which they want, which they, in which they want to do this. Um, but the question is not fighting among themselves on that, which I understand primaries, but is to contrast with 
who through his loss first when McCain voted no and they couldn't they couldn't repeal Affordable Care Act then then Trump went to court to do it but it's clear that we want universal coverage all of our candidates at different speeds and different paths he wants to eliminate the Affordable Care Act and when John Kasich and I in 2000 whatever the year 11 um, work together to expand Medicaid. We have 900,000 people in this state with insurance that didn't have it before. And we have, there's a, a, recent, a recent survey, there are two million Ohioans, including most of you, anybody over about 50 is in this category, um, or over 40, two million Ohioans have a pre-existing condition. They're not all gonna lose their insurance, but insurance companies, if ACA is, is repealed, is, 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 is found unconstitutional. Um, there will be there will some number, significant number of them will lose their insurance. Next question. Uh, Senator Brown, uh, deep respect for you and for all the work that you've done as a senator for the state of Ohio. Uh, it's been my conjecture for years that you should run for president, but uh, beyond that, as an advocate for people with Alzheimer's and dementia, I know there's a lot of work going on. I had a meeting with uh, Beth Pems and Joe Benny back in 2015 to discuss this at uh, Congressman Renacci's office. Are you ready and willing to discuss submitting legislation for people to be able to have music players available, made available by prescription and reimbursable by Medicaid and other insurance providers? Um, I don't know the answer to that. I, I do know that, and thank you for asking that, and thanks for your, your obviously obvious empathy uh, for people that, that suffer um, a whole host of diseases. I, um, I think it, it speaks to me that we need to invest, and I'm not avoiding your question because I don't know the answer to that specific, but um, to invest more than we do in NIH and CDC. I mean, the, this pen I wear is really all about public health, and we live, we live 30 years longer today longer, healthier lives because of the role of government, from Medicaid to minimum wage to seat belts to science, scientific research and healthcare. And, and um, if we could, if we could, um, I mean, if, if we could do more about gun safety, if we could do more about, I mean, the, the new threat from tobacco with the companies and jeweling and e-cigarettes, I mean, these battles are ongoing. Um, a big part of it, though, is, is medical research and I know that families that have dealt with dementia and it, 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 it just had, just, I, I can't imagine the difficulty. I mean, I know a lot of people that have had that in their families and um, whatever it takes. There's been additional coverage recently, I've noticed in the media, about how music can be very helpful in the treatment of, of patients with Alzheimer's. Thanks. Thank you. Senator Brown, I first want to thank you for your career and being a, a, someone who always stands up for justice. I, today, I just want to, uh, in this audience, publicly thank you for today signing the, uh, the genocide uh, bill in Senate. Uh, and following, uh, I'm hoping my, my one question is, uh, do you think that the Senate will follow the House and do the same thing uh, to recognize this and also to prevent what's happening in Syria to continue? Thank you. Thank, thanks for asking that. Um, I don't know. I, I know that... I mean, McConnell typically follows Trump on, on most issues. Uh, he is split with Trump, sort of, on Syria and on Turkey. Um, I don't know that the administration, if that, and, and 
I think the splits have come when it's so ob when the link is so obvious between Trump's actions and Russian interests. I, I think that predict anything in that part of the world about what this president's going to do, you have to look through the lens of what does Russia want, and that's um, and that's disturbing even to Republicans that do whatever that that are essentially Trump lapdogs, which is frankly most of them. Um, so. Um, I don't know how McConnell will look at that based on, I mean, that would be my analysis. We will be putting, trying to put pressure on him to do it. Um, but we also have seen the Senate has been a graveyard of sorts for um, 25 bills from the House that, are, that have huge public um, support. Pension bill, minimum wage, overtime, uh, violence against women, net neutrality, a whole bunch of issues that passed big in the House that have 70, 80, 90% public support, and McConnell's too busy confirming judges, young conservative judges, and can't find time to move on these issues. So I, I just don't know, but thank you. It was surprising you. that it was a 405 to 11 vote yeah, in the yeah, House, a, yeah. a, rare, a rare bipartisan right. partisan agreement there. Thank you. Thank you. Next question. Hi, I'm Linda Strievsky. Um I think that um, people here at the City Club share uh, a belief in civil dialogue and that seems to be in short supply these days on the national stage. And I'm hoping we can get back to a place where we can have that kind of civil dialogue. But I'd, I'd appreciate your thoughts on how long it's gonna take us to get back to that nirvana. Yeah. Um, thank you, Linda, and I appreciate your always thoughtful approach to things. I, I don't, um, I first of all, I mean, I, I don't like the way the Senate's run now. I, I, I know a lot of people didn't like the way Harry Reid ran it. Whatever Reid was doing wrong, McConnell's doing more of it. But um, I, you know, I don't, I don't let Democrats totally off the hook here. But um, we, uh, you know, there, there's, I, I, I don't, I always hesitate with romanticizing the past. I mean, in the 1950s, 95 white men and one white woman couldn't pass civil rights legislation. So um, the Senate is, is better than that, although we don't function the way that we should. Um, Trump has made it worse. McConnell's made it worse when Trump's gone. And if he's gone in 2021, um, we will try to return to much more regular order. Um, I think we should do away with the filibuster because I think we just we are too dysfunctional when that's there. Um, and I, I, I would not have said that two or three years ago. Um, it's not been Trump that's made me want to say it. It's just we have a, a government that can't. I mean, when I think about this, another thing I, I actually learned from from writing this is that that when government government is so so calcified now because of um, dark money and because of interest groups, we simply can't, we, we can't, the fact that we can't even debate climate change. When 10 years ago, the Republican, 12 years ago, the Republican platform acknowledged that climate change had a lot to do with, I mean, one, it exists, and second, it was caused in significant part by human actions. Um, yet we can't even, we can't do anything on climate change. So um, that's why I think the filibuster should go, but I, I think one, I don't know how we get back to any normalcy with Trump as president. I think we can when he's gone, even, even if McConnell's still there. Thank you. Good afternoon. Um, I have a lot of questions, but I'm gonna stick to one. <laughs> um, were there any senators, one or two, that you wished had had Dusk 88 and you wished you could have written about in terms of progressivism? Um, yeah, uh, Hubert Humphrey I would love to have written about. Um, I guess I haven't thought of that question, except I, I thought of Humphrey often during writing this because he, what, what, I, what I liked about Humphrey, and I, I met him a couple times. McGovern, by the way, McGovern's the only one of these eight that I ever met, and I got to know him 
fairly well. I mean, spent maybe five times, got an hour or two or three with him. Um, but Humphrey, Humphrey just brought a joy to politics. The happy warrior is a perfect, perfect appellation for him. So um, that, I, I guess I would pick him as the one. McGovern, McGovern tells a story when um, that he, you know, he lost, he won one state, Massachusetts in 72, 12 years later, Mondale won one state, Minnesota. And a year after that race, Mondale and McGovern were talking and Mondale said, George, when, when, when do you get over this? Losing like that in, in McGovern sort of wistfully said, I'll, I'll let you know. <laughs> it, it, it was, you know, it was a scar that, I mean, I didn't see McGovern in his last three or four years of life, but I, I think it might have been a scar that kind of never heals. Thank you. My name is Lucy Cooley. I recently saw a t-shirt online, Ohio, Alabama of the North. And I'm just wondering, with HB6 and the heartbeat issue, uh, are you seeing any blue shoots coming up in Ohio, or do you think we're going to stay red? I'm really glad you asked that. Um, thank, I really am. Thank and you. Don't buy that t-shirt. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I do. I do. And I see, um, I'll tell you, uh, Jan and Cindy are working on something with a group called Lead Ohio. Um, it's a training session. Connie and I spoke there a couple of weeks ago. A train, it's training mostly young candidates, not, not all young, some are, some are middle-aged, but more young than not, more women than, more women than men, many people of color, uh, to begin to build this party on a local level. And these, so these will be trained, they're training, it's, a, it's a intense over a six or eight week period, eight or 10 week period, I think. Um, really good, best candidate training I've ever seen. Um, and these candidates, um, and there, there's, there's also a group that my daughter Elizabeth, who's a, just got elected, re-elected city council this week in Columbus, um, that, that they have worked together. I see Nan Whaley's gonna speak at the city club, I think in December, um, that just a lot of young elected officials, progressive Democrats that know, mostly under 45, that know our futures from the bottom up. We haven't done a good farm, we haven't had a good farm team in this state of Democrats for a long time. I understand the state's getting harder, it's way more, it's, it's significantly more Republican than it was when I started statewide and with Dick in the early 80s, he started a little earlier than that. Um, but I, but it's, it's, it's increasingly hard because our demographics aren't changing. I mean, look at North Carolina and Georgia and Colorado and Arizona and Virginia's already a strong democratic state when 15 years ago it was more Republican than we are. And it's all about demographics, but it's also about organizing and it's making the contrast. I mean, you will, you will hear me use the word betray over and over in 2020, talking about what President Trump's done. He's betrayed farmers by choosing oil companies over, over family farmers. He's betrayed worker. I mean, it's, and we make that case and build that case and talk directly about who's on our side. Um, we can win this state, but it's, it's harder than it used to be. Good afternoon. You've told us that there are no women that you've highlighted in your book. Are there women who have supported these senators or maybe some senators that um, really championed women's issues that you can discuss from oh, of your course, book? Of course, and I, I did highlight women in other, other ways. Um, I just said there's no, no woman ever hold, held this desk um, and that will change in the future. Um, woman, one of my favorite people in this book, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have great detail because I only found out about her when Connie and I were doing the presidential early January, February. It's a woman in, in um, Las Vegas named Hattie Canty. She's passed away. Uh, Catherine Cortez Masto, the relatively new senator from there, knew her fairly well. Um, she, was, uh, she was a member of Local 226. She grew up in, in Alabama. 
She was a sharecropper's daughter. Uh, she came to Las Vegas to work in a hotel as a maid, and she organized the longest successful six-year strike against the Frontier Hotel and until the strike lasted until Frontier finally sold the hotel to somebody who'd recognized the union. It was one of the few, um, except for that guy, and who's the guy that, uh, uh, Shell except for Shell Nadelson's hotels, almost all of them were organized in Nevada, in Las Vegas. And that was a six-year strike. No one crossed the picket line. In the average, the, the, my understanding is there is, no, there is no hotel worker in Las Vegas who makes less than $18 an hour. And you know, look around in, I'm sure in Cleveland, I'm sure in smaller cities throughout the country that haven't had that kind of union strength in that ability to advocate for low-income workers. And she is, she's one of the heroes in this book, not, not in any detail. I, didn't, I wasn't able to find out a lot about her. It was the end. I'd already pretty much finished the book at that point and added her. But there are, there are a number of people like that. Thank you for that. Hi. Oh, hi. Um, I'm Anaya Samad. I'm a current senior at the Cleveland School, of, Cleveland School of Science and Medicine. And I remember there's a line that your wife mentioned talking about progressives being a little too ambitious. So I was wondering what your thoughts on the Green New Deal and if it will help combat the immediate changes that are happening because of climate change. Thank you. Um, yeah, ambition. Ambition. I, I would never. I would never counsel somebody your age not to be ambitious. Understand that the difference. It's. It's these were men that that let ambition take hold of them to compromise their integrity. So that, that would be a distinction I would make. Um, I just lost my train of thought. Well, the Green New Deal. Yeah, the Green New Deal. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't, we don't really know quite what the Green New Deal is. It's, um, it's, it's been more of a talking point. I agree, when, when, when people in Congress talk about the Green New Deal, they're mostly saying, we want bold action on climate change. We want Congress to make that its number one or two or three priority because it is the most important moral issue of our times. And, um, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm four decades older than you are, I assume, and, and you're gonna have to deal with this a lot longer than my generation will. And it's shameful how Congress has, has simply not done it. I, I absolutely support aggressive work on climate change. I'm now, I'm the senior Democrat of the Banking Committee. If I'm chair, if we win the Senate in 2020, I'll be chairman of the committee. Um, one of the things we will do is um, push banks hard on assessing their risk and on climate because if banks, bank, banks are making loans in too many cases that contribute to climate change, they are, they are gonna have to be accountable for that as they write these loans that are, that are increasingly high risk. So there are, there are a lot of ways to get to the Green New Deal. My committee is one of them that most people probably haven't thought of. Um, and, um, but there are all kinds of things we need to do um, on, on alternative energy, on investment, on transportation, uh, on um, everything on the Green New Deal. So thank you for weighing in on that. Hi. Your book gives you a wonderful, wonderful perspective on whole careers that included luminous years in the Senate. But I wonder if from that you can extract some wisdom on how senators who, by definition, have domestic experience in getting to the Senate, learn about foreign policy. And it has become an issue in the Democratic primary as we see a wonderful candidate 
from South Bend, Indiana, with the mayor Alti under his belt and no other position, but great intelligence and warmth. And can we hope that someone like that can in some way uh, rise to the challenge of understanding uh, foreign policy? Uh, sure we can. I, 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 I mean, experience so matters, of course. Um, but so does energy and so does, I mean, we have, the, we have a party now where we have three leading candidates in their 70s and Bloomberg also, who I believe is a bit older than Joe Biden, um, getting in this race, maybe getting in this race. And then we have a, you know, somebody as young as, as, as uh, Mayor Pete. Um, I guess I'm beginning, to, Rick, I thought your question was going to be how do, you, how do you prepare in the Senate if you're running for president? And most, most senators, most, I've noticed that most people get elected to the Senate. One of the ways you can tell if they have presidential ambitions is they try to get on the Foreign Relations Committee their first term. Um, I, that's kind of an inside thing maybe that I think is pretty true. Um, Obama did it, Hillary did it. Um, a number of people in, this, in this, um, this class of candidates have done it, or armed services sometimes. So I think that's important, but I, I also think that if you're as capable as Mayor Pete, um, you, can, you can learn a lot of things. If, if he has the maturity and the life experience, to me it's more, does he have maturity and life experience rather than can he really learn what he needs to in foreign policy? Here. Up next, we have a question from Twitter, which states, you mentioned the change in Hugo Black and the flaws of all people, including and especially politicians today. How can we work to stop judging people by their worst act, to see them in their totality and not just in their flaws? You want to take that one? <laughs> you have opinions? That's a pretty good question for a journalist. Well, don't you think, first of all, you have to be able to see intention? to change. I mean, it's true that I always say you can't ask people to change and then not give them a chance to. But it seems to me at the heart of, your, uh, heart of that question, and I would like you to expand on it a little bit, is you must see an intention to change, a true intention to change, right? Yeah, and I, I think that it kind of made me think, and thank you for that question. So often it's the other way, um, the change. What I liked about a number of these senators is their change. Maybe it was just because they changed towards the way I think, but um, is, is that so often people come to elective office with, you know, with a, with a whole fountain of idealism and then they get sucked into the, to the life and the flattery um, and the interest groups and the desire to raise money and the need to raise money and all of those things. And they get, they get not just more conservative because conservative isn't necessarily bad, Dick, Pogue, um, but um, conservative. It's also, but, but more, more, more locked in with special interests. I mean, I, I, I talk in here some detail about the tobacco industry and how they just never give up. 1,300 people a day die from, in this country, die from tobacco-related illnesses, and the tobacco industry knows they got to find 1,300 new customers every day, and they're not going to uh, people my age because we, you know, we're not going to start smoking. We're grandparents. They start going to teenagers, and we thought we'd seen the smoking rate drop in half, better than in half in this country, since since um, Dr. Terry put the put the um, the, the message on, on cigarettes, and we were making incredible progress, dropped by well over half, and now it's going back up because e-cigarettes and the tobacco companies are so smart and so diabolical about this. So that was a very much a side answer, but I think that when I see what happens with interest groups, that, that's so often the fight to, to, not, to not get sucked into that. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.
Today at the City Club, we're at the Global Center for Health Innovation listening to a forum with Senator Sherrod Brown. He's in conversation with his wife, Connie Schultz, Pulitzer Prize-winning author and professional in residence at the College of Communication and School of Journalism and Mass Communication at Kent State University. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Senator Brown and Ms. Schultz, and thank you, members and friends of the City Club, with special thanks to our City Club members whose financial support makes our work possible. To find out more about upcoming forums and how you can support the City Club, visit us online at cityclub.org. The forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.